The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I think this is dangerous because the, the, the court is legitimizing and legalizing an informal cooperation between... Uh, state actors and private intermediaries at the expense of users, at the expense of transparency. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 29th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. Odds are, you probably haven't heard of the Israeli government's cyber unit. But it's worth paying attention to whether or not you live in Israel and the Palestinian territories. It's an entity that, among other things, reaches out to major online platforms like Facebook and Twitter with requests that the platforms remove content. And it's one of a number of such agencies around the globe, which are known as internet referral units. Earlier in April, the Israeli Supreme Court gave green light to the unit's activities, rejecting a legal challenge that charged the unit with infringing on constitutional rights. This week on the show, Evelyn Dueck and I talked to Fadi Khoury and Rabia Egbaria, who were part of the legal team that challenged the cyber unit's work on behalf of Adala, the legal center for Arab and minority rights in Israel. Why do they, and many other human rights activists, find internet referral units so troubling? And why do governments like the unit so much? Why did the Supreme Court disagree with Fadi and Rabia's challenge to the unit's activities? And what does the court's decision say about the developing relationship between countries' legal systems and platform content moderation systems? It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 29th. Israel's cyber unit and extra-legal content takedowns. Fadi and Rubia, thank you both for joining us. Before we get started on the specifics of the Israeli Supreme Court decision that came down earlier this month, I think it would be useful to just describe the factual background of the case. Can you describe what the cyber unit is that you filed a petition against, uh, I think, a, a year and a half ago now? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll start with this one. So the... In 2015, the cyber unit was established within the prosecutor's office under the general attorney of Israel. Its mandate was to basically uh, deal with criminal offenses that occur online. Within that mandate, um, they developed multifaceted strategy 
one of which was the subject of the petition we submitted, uh, which was the alternative enforcement mechanism. Uh, I can elaborate more on that. But basically what this does, it eliminates the, the need to uh, directly prosecute people who are allegedly committing certain types of criminal offenses online and go directly to the consequences of these offenses and trying to eliminate those consequences by removing certain contents from social media platforms or other websites through negotiations and uh, direct discussions with those platforms. Right. And so just to clarify, what's sort of very interesting and perhaps worrying about this so-called alternative enforcement mechanism, which, you know, nice euphemism, is that it's not a legal request and there's no sort of court order or there's no determination of illegality of the content. It's a referral to the platform to take the content down on the basis of their own rules. Is that correct? Yes. So what they what they claim to be doing is basically determining internally whether certain content or speech online amounts to uh, a criminal offense based on Israeli law, mostly related to incitement for violence or terrorism and also content that may put uh, minors in jeopardy. Other types of content might be speech that targets office holders or public servants, such as uh, judges, for example. If certain criticisms amount to humiliation or uh, harassment, that could also be incorporated into the activity of the cyber unit. And basically, the whole process, as it is claimed to be, voluntary. So the, the unit just refers requests to the platforms and the platforms based on their community standards and internal regulations decide whether or not to remove the content. That's the, offic the official policy. So we'll get to the decision itself in a little bit, but spoiler alert for listeners, um, you lost and <laughs> sorry, but one of the reasons why this case is important and worth paying attention to for people beyond Israel is that the cyber unit is part of a growing trend of what are sort of more generically known as internet referral units. These started in the UK in, in 2010, but have since spread to the EU and a number of other countries, including France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and now Israel. And I think it's worth drawing out one of the reasons why governments might use this mechanism. So as we noted, an important characteristic about them is that they send a notice to platforms about the content on the basis of the platform's own rules rather than a notice of illegality under local law. And one of the main reasons why governments might prefer this route, apart from obviously <laughs> avoiding the hassle of getting a court order, is that if a platform takes down a piece of content under their own terms of service, then they will take it down completely and globally, as opposed to when there's a determination of illegality under local law, then it only gets geo-blocked within that country, but people outside that country can still see the content. But many listeners might be thinking, if a piece of content violates a platform's rules, then it should come down and globally makes sense. So apart from the legal authorization and, and constitutional law issues, sort of in just plain factual terms, what is it that worries you about this arrangement? Like, what is it that caused you to, to challenge this practice? I just want to flag on what you just said, Evelyn, which is so true that 
In addition to the fact that governments don't need to obtain a court order, there is also another problem here that it's not only taken down globally, but also the users don't even know that the governments are standing behind this trigger of uh, takedown. My immediate concern was based off you know, historical experience with free speech censorship um, in Israel. I think ambiguity about the process and the fact that some official in a darkened office deciding whether or not a certain content amounts to a criminal offense or allegedly so, and based off that determination goes on to request the removal of that content without any process that could engage with the, the content owner and, and give any kind of opportunity to defend the, the content against the alleged uh, uh, criminality of the content. This creates a, a very one-sided uh, process, which in the past has proven to victimize more Palestinians than uh, Jewish residents in Israel. And in that regard, a lot of the posts that Palestinians write are in Arabic. And we've seen in the past how the, the translation uh, of a lot of speech in Arabic has been distorted in ways that allowed its interpretation to be kind of uh, viewed as criminal uh, or falling within certain criminal offenses. And so all this kind of lack of transparency raises a lot of concerns in that regard, that a lot of collateral damage is going to happen to content particularly critical of the state of Israel by deeming it internally as either inciting to violence or falling within the ambit of the terrorism offenses that the Israeli law has a rich um, array of. So that's my primary concern when I started working on this issue. I think what's also concerning here is that all of this activity, which since Fadi started tracking in 2016, 17, since the beginning of its activity, it has been expanding very dramatically. And we don't really know what is happening. And this is a crucial part of the problem, that this whole system is not only you know, voluntary, but it's a basic or an integral part of it is that it's uh, opaque or not transparent by design. So the, the state here is using the self-regulation apparatus of, of platforms or social media companies to take down content while hiding behind that apparatus as well. And I think this is, as, as Fadi said, I mean, this joint design problem leads to a lot of concerns, particularly in the context of Israeli prosecution of Palestinian content, but also one more feature of the cyber unit or the internet referral units more generally is that they may also try to take down content beyond their jurisdiction. So we don't really know enough about the, the actual activity of these units. And in the case of Israel, it's particularly striking because the content can be content published by citizens of Israel but also by Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories. 
but also as well beyond the geographic unit that is under the, the, the authority of the Israel in different shapes and forms. So uh, it raises a lot of questions here also about the remit of these units and the potential jurisdiction of their activity. So we definitely want to talk about how broad this is and just the the sheer numbers. But before we do that, I want to dig in a little more on uh, what you mentioned in terms of how the cyber unit is addressing content from Palestinians specifically. So first off, I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit more about who you were appealing on behalf of, which is so the the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights, um, and also whether there are any particular instances of posts being taken down that particularly concerned you, just to sort of make the, the issue a little more concrete for listeners. Right. So again, the let's start with the, the first part of this question. Uh, we petitioned on behalf of Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, and the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. It was a public interest litigation. We didn't have concrete petitioners. And this is directly related to the fact that nobody knows whether or not their content removal was based off a request by the state of Israel. If, for instance, Facebook decides to remove a post I wrote uh, based off its community standards, but that was motivated by a referral by the cyber unit, I am not going to be told that. So there is an impossibility to kind of figure out who are the victims, if I may call them so, of this kind of regulatory process, because nobody knows which posts are being requested uh, by the the state of Israel or by, by the cyber unit. So it's really difficult to answer your second question. The victims don't know they are victims of these policies. Right. That goes back to what Rabia was saying before, is that, yeah, a user gets their content taken down and uh, as a result of a referral from the cyber unit, and they just get told that their content has been taken down under the community standards rather than as a result of the government request. And then on the flip side, the platform similarly just sort of sweeps it up into its general community standards enforcement reporting rather than they have a separate report for takedowns as a result of government requests and legal orders and it doesn't go into that. So just to give you an idea, the last few sort of transparency reports by Facebook on takedowns in that second report from under local law were 127 in the second half of 2020, 283 in the first half, 525 in the in the second half of 2019, 260 in the first half, so on and so forth. That's sort of the ballpark of the figures that Facebook is reporting as taking down content as a result of Israeli government requests, legal orders. Is that anywhere near what the cyber unit is reporting as having sort of referred, or is that sort of a completely different scale? It is a completely different scale. Actually, when the cyber unit started operating in late 2015, the first report it issued included 2,241 requests and or referrals, if you may. But we see that this volume has increased dramatically over the uh, subsequent three years to reach about 19,600 referrals. 
So it's a dramatic increase that happened in a very short time frame, and it's nothing compared to the volume of uh, orders obtained from courts, which Facebook details, for example. Another thing that I want to add in this context is that we see that in parallel to these requests, there is also a growing compliance that is happening during the same time frame. So we also see that in parallel to the growth in uh, referrals from around, again, 2000 in 2016 to about 19,000 in 2019, we see that there is a growth in the, in the overall compliance rate by the companies which the cyber unit reports. So while in 2016, the compliance rate stood at around 76%, it increased to about 90% in 2019. And this is something very remarkable that is happening there. Now, there might be, you know, several um, uh, explanations to this. In court, we see that the, um, the state tried to explain this as gaining expertise while engaging in the, in the self-regulation apparatus. Namely, you know, they, they claim that they're learning uh, the community standards better. They're uh, uh, developing expertise in engaging with these players and in scoring basically right, quote-unquote, to, to how these uh, violations work. But another explanation can be looking at the wider context as well. And looking at the wider context that happened between these years, in the three years between 2016 to 2019 in Israel, is illuminating. You know, we see that during this period, you had a lot of threats, political threats of regulation, of regulating the private platforms, the social media platforms particularly. There was a Facebook bill introduced and that was halted last minute in 2018. And in the the background, we also see very explicit threats and meetings happening between seniors from uh, Facebook and uh, other companies to political um, ministers and the cyber unit officers. So this is happening in the background and may, you know, shed the light on this increase. We know that these companies, after all, are you know susceptible to, to political power and they, they, they strategize in the market according to their own interests that may infringe in this case or, or push them to cooperate with, with the state requests. The state in this case has leverage and the leverage takes place in, in particularly in Israel, both in direct regulation attempts, but also in taxation threats. Uh, Facebook, for example, is incorporated in Israel. And we see that during these years, uh, several times in the background of threats to regulate Facebook, there were also threats to tax Facebook. And I'm talking particularly about Facebook because it's important to understand that Facebook is the most dominant uh, social media actor or platform in Israel-Palestine. So there could be different explanation to the rise of compliance, but we, we definitely see that happening uh, during the time frame of the increasing referrals from the cyber unit to the platforms. Yeah, I think the the idea of the sort of the knife um, hanging over the, the head of the, the platforms here is is really important. I also think it's worth noting, I my understanding is that the court during argument asked the government about other countries' internet referral units. Do you think the fact that other governments like the UK and the EU use similar bodies played a role in the decision here? So this is an excellent point because 
It's important to understand, I think, the framework in which this our legal challenge, the petition, uh, the cyber unit case is grounded. And it's grounded in a very basic legal argument of no authority. Uh, the cyber unit, unlike the, 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 the unit in the UK or France or the EU, does not have any explicit authority. The prosecution basically does not have any explicit authority to initiate such referrals or notices to private platforms. And what we came before, you know, we delved into the the, the broader argument of structural relationships between state power to companies or platforms that they're able to regulate. Um, We basically said there is no authority. And on this particular argument, the court asked for a comparative view which reveals, in fact, that other internet referral units, particularly the ones in, in, in the UK, the EU, and France, have a governing normative framework that they operate in. And this was a crucial point because if you we look at the, the, the cyber unit decision, the court's decision, we don't see a very detailed analysis of a comparative law, although this was argued and submitted to the court. So I think, in fact, that it might have been calculated or, or um, you know, pushed the court to conclude uh, differently. But by the end of the day, there is a major distinction between the operation or the legal framework that is governed by, uh, by the Israeli case in relation to other cases of internet referral units, which is the, 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 the lack of authority. Yeah, one of the very interesting things to watch, of course, will be whether the influence goes both ways and whether other courts or lawmakers around the world start referring to the Israeli Supreme Court precedent and its sort of condoning of this practice in sort of their decisions. And perhaps they won't pick up on these nuanced sort of distinguishing factors that you're drawing out here. But, you know, I I guess something, something to watch. I also want to draw out something sort of a bit more explicitly that you mentioned earlier, Rabia, about where these posts might be coming from. Because as you said, there's absolutely no information about the posts that the cyber unit was referring, which means that it's entirely possible that the cyber unit is referring posts from people overseas, for example, perhaps in America, as violations of Facebook's rules, and then the platform will take it down completely. Is that, uh, is that correct? And did the court talk about that in its decision at all? Yes, it's absolutely correct. And I think it's an important question. The court did not delve into that question. It mentioned it and it raised the question. In fact, it framed it as, well, it would be easier to justify if these contents were not contents of citizens because the constitutional protection, therefore, would not apply to these people. But I think it raises a much more complicated question and the court did not resolve it. It just mentioned it as as a question that was not sufficiently developed. But we should understand that it was not sufficiently developed or we as petitioners did not have the abilities to develop it with the lack of information. When the system by design is operating in such an opaque way, it is hard for us to really know. Many of our arguments may sound as speculations. All right. So now that we've set out that background, let's talk about the nitty gritty of the court's decision. As we've kind of, as we've discussed and as we've sort of touched on, you unfortunately lost. Walk us through the court's reasoning. Yeah. So like Rabia already mentioned, the petition was pretty modest in its ambition. Because of the unique relationship that 
the whole mechanism uh, of the cyber unit kind of established between different parties, uh, which really we can talk about a triangle here between the platforms, the state represented by the cyber unit and the end user. So it's really difficult to speak directly to the issue of infringements or violations of free speech rights because part of or, or the main actor who's doing the, the infringement or censoring content is the platform. And this was not a petition against Facebook. And, and I'm talking about Facebook because 87% of the, the content that's being removed or referred by the cyber unit is uh, directed at Facebook. So the, the, the infringement that is represented by the acts of Facebook were not part of this petition. The modest aim was to basically force the state to establish whatever power it's trying to execute or act upon in a legal framework. It can't be merely that the, the state has an intrinsic or inherent power to prosecute or censor anything it deems criminal uh, based of uh, um, general state authority that is not defined by the parliament. We're still talking here about the executive branch. Uh, so the argument goes very straightforwardly as follows. The, the activity of the cyber unit entails the risk of censorship. Now, whether or not the state itself is doing the censorship is besides the point because there's a, an active state that at the end of it, there's censorship of speech. And the doctrines around free speech in Israel, unlike, for example, the US, is that a lot of content and a lot of speech is, is incorporated within the, the constitutional protection of free speech and is subject to proportionality. And so whether or not you can limit certain speech is a whole different question from whether or not a certain speech is recognized as constitutionally protected. And so even criminal speech is still speech. And in that context, it is subject to constitutional requirements if it were to be limited or censored. And so what we were saying is that the state had no legal authority, nowhere to be found, to perform these functions that end in the limitation of individuals' free speech on social networks. And that's the basic argument. And it's really boring for a lot of people. It's not as exciting as uh, one might expect from this kind of litigation. But that was basically the most important point that we tried to kind of build the case on in order also not to bring in Facebook and deal with the whole kind of the, the contract basically uh, between the user and the private platforms, which is a whole different kind of area of, of law. But I think Fadi was complicated and what actually made it unexpectedly more interesting is the state's response uh, that came slightly before submitting the petition which complicated the question because the state didn't acknowledge that this action is state action, that the referrals are in fact state action. And so the state tried, the cyber unit, the prosecution tried to claim that because the, the design of this 
quote-unquote alternative enforcement mechanism is voluntary, therefore there is no state action. The fact that platforms by the end of the day are the ones who take down the content and state is merely functioning, the claim goes, as a facilitator or as a referral body that is not bound by constitutional constraints. And I think that was a very interesting argument that the referrals, because they're ostensibly voluntary, they don't constitute state action. And the court rejected that argument. And I think we successfully, in this case, convinced the court that you cannot perceive the, uh, and we cannot understand these referrals as, you know, a citizen's referral or a user referral. The state has leverage. It, the fact that it can regulate these platforms and push them basically to cooperate with it and have preferential access to the, to the platforms is alarming and is crucial to the design of the, the, the voluntary system. So uh, the, the court actually ruled that the referrals are state action that require adequate authorization by law, but it went on to dismiss the more broad argument about violation of constitutional rights and said that it is because that the, the violation of constitutional rights has not been proven, while in fact it's impossible to prove it, it is that that practice is sufficiently grounded in the policing powers or the residual authority of the government. Now, I think this is an odd decision to make kind of a double move to recognize that this is a state action while at the same time saying that it's unproven that this state action leads to a violation of constitutional rights. We argued in this sense, and I think the court kind of acknowledged it, but didn't really reason persuasively, uh, to my taste at least, what is uh, the rationale behind the, the, the eventual finding that you know uh, residual governmental power is sufficient. We argued that these referrals, while uh, the cyber unit is referring all these contents, it's actually, in some sense, not only conducting a state action, but also externalizing the state authority. You know, we didn't dispute that, you know, within the, the, the contractual realm between the user and Facebook, there may be a distinct law governing that area. But when the state comes into the, 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 the picture, these relationships shift. If the state is implicated in the endeavor to censor speech, it should do that according to the public law constraints. And the court, in this sense, didn't delve too much into that. It kind of bypassed it by suggesting that there was no concrete violation of rights proven. And it came up with this, I think, interesting reasoning, which said this is a new form of regulation because the private market uh, actors are becoming so central. So we will allow the state uh, what the court called reverse regulation, which means that the state acts suddenly as a facilitator of, of this new relationship, of this triangle. And I think this is dangerous because what is happening here is basically the, the, the court is legitimizing and legalizing an informal cooperation between uh, state actors and private intermediaries at the expense of users, at the expense of transparency, 
And in some sense, it could be perceived as privatizing the state apparatus and externalizing state action in this sense. To your earlier point, Fadi, I just want to say this is the opposite of boring to us and our listeners. We we love the wonky analysis and that's why we, we brought you on. So we're grateful for it. And I, I also want to say that it did seem like a very bold argument from the government to say that this wasn't really government action in, at all. But I can also see sort of how you could make that argument at first glance. Like the government was just flagging things for platforms on the basis of their own rules, just like any private citizen could. You know, I could go and do it right now. What difference does it make if if the government does it? So do you know if the cyber unit had a different channel for flagging things? Like I know that many other IRUs around the world do have sort of a direct line or are made trusted flaggers. So, you know, does the Israeli government have like a red or, you know, maybe it's probably blue sort of telephone that it picks up and, and dials Facebook HQ? Or are they sort of literally just clicking on the same flagging button that the rest of us do? I don't know anything about the actual mechanism, but the court... Uh, states that uh, that the cyber unit has been granted a reliable reporter status by the operators of these platforms. So whichever process it's uh, using to actually kind of create this channel of communication with the platforms, whatever it's sending is being considered reliable. And the court acknowledges that. So so it is it is the case that the, the cyber unit is considered trusted flagger in some of the platforms. But while it's unclear what exact channels they use with uh, other platforms, it is from the cyber units um, early actually um, reports from 2000, the report of 2000, the second report of 2016-17, the cyber unit mentions that the, there has been a substantial increase in the cooperation of the platforms and it mentions the case of Facebook where the, the, the cyber units mentions that it started to reply to their requests within several hours. So there, it's clear and it's acknowledged that during the case, it was acknowledged that there was preferential treatment or at least special treatment for the cyber units referrals. What exact mechanism? It's still the, the, the details of that mechanism, whether it's only a trusted flagger mechanism that relies on the regular programs of the platforms, or there is an additional pipelines, it's not quite clear. Yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind and how it kind of gives the lie to this idea that they're just like any other private citizen raising these issues. I also want to touch on uh, how one of the judgments talks about bots, because I think there's some really interesting and I would argue a bit confusing stuff in there. Can you talk about that? What did it say about bots? So that was an interesting, actually, point that the, the court raised. We didn't fully argue it, which was interesting, because there was actually no information regarding bots. We couldn't obtain any information, you know, about what is the exact division of these referrals. The state didn't mention it in the proceedings. But the court picked it up and I think wanted to state that bots don't have human rights. That's the quote. But... It, it reveals something that is interesting that, you know, there is here some sort of uh, hypocrisy in the, in, the, in the treatment of the factual basis. While, you know, when it came to the petitioners, the court misplaced the burden on the petitioners to prove 
the infringement of rights, of constitutional rights, while at the same time, it just went on without any clear information about the, the, the involvement in bots in all this mechanism or in all this uh, content creation to, to state that the bulk of content or to assume that the bulk of content removed is generated by bots and therefore arguably, you know, if you reach the conclusion that content that is generated by bots does not have constitutional protection, then arguably it is easier to justify the referrals. But also this area of law is still unclear, as others also have pointed out, that there is a whole rigorous debate about, you know, what is the status of content produced by bots or by uh, non-human agents. I think this question didn't, that the court didn't really get to the bottom of the discussion here and went on to assume some uh, factual assumptions without any information that exists to ver- verify these assumptions. So I think it's it's a contrast between how this happened or how the court reached this conclusion while the um, lack of uh, factual basis regarding the violation of rights played against the petitioner in this case. Yeah, what I love, Dash, find very aggravating about, you know, the, the idea that you didn't even argue it and there was sort of no factual basis for this discussion is that it's just really common. Like bots are this stand-in bogeyman for everything wrong with the internet that gets brought up in so many contexts and so much writing and, and discussion about the internet when their impact on discourse right now is is pretty unclear, but it's certainly way less than it was even a few years ago, given actions by platforms to be way more aggressive about cleaning it up and sort of all of the best analysis now suggests that, you know, the actual problem is authentic speech that causes a bunch of problems. So one of the interesting things about the decision um, is that it it cites uh, my co-host, it cites Evelyn, specifically a piece of hers on Facebook's new oversight board. I'm curious why you think the court was so interested in the way that Facebook works or in the governance systems within platforms. Like, how was this relevant to its decision? Yeah, I think that the court, in an interesting move, tried to point out that despite you know, the problems with the alternative um, enforcement mechanism, particularly about the due process claim, because we claim that it's not only, you know, um, uh, a freedom of speech uh, violation, but it also erodes the, the idea of a due process. While if we, you know, think about the state here as the actor who leads to the censorship, censorship of speech, the traditional way it would have been potentially, you know, to to indict people in court or to to do a criminal trial. And so there is a clear framework that is governing that area. While this new alternative enforcement mechanism is basically eroding that traditional structure and building on a direct cooperation between the state and the, the platforms at the expense of both freedom of speech, transparency and due process. Of the users. And then I think the court invoked, you know, the internal kind of, you know, due process uh, uh, of the companies that enable reviewing or, uh, you know, appealing against content that has been removed and potentially the Facebook oversight board. But we need to understand that the court referenced that as a kind of, you know, you also see that it, it understood that there is that this uh, Facebook oversight board cannot substitute 
other oversight mechanisms. Because by the end of the day, the court, despite dismissing the petition, it noted that the cyber unit should consider establishing an oversight, an external oversight on its work. So I think it's interesting how the court is viewing this cooperation. I think it's it's interesting to, to see how the court is giving legitimacy and also a space for the private uh, justice kind of mechanisms inside the, the platforms. So it's giving it actually a legal status that can lead. And I think this is part of the precedent of adjudicating this kind of novel aspects of uh, speech in the online sphere is the court is relying on the private platforms and, and their centrality, engaging with this centrality and saying, this is fine, this is legitimate. We can you know, continue to cooperate informally with these platforms to achieve some sort of an imagined public good, perhaps. You know, the court cites that this activity is, quote, you know, crucial to the national security and social order. I think this is a big statement, you know. So so it's interesting to see how the court is perceiving these private actors, giving them and their internal private uh, adjudication mechanisms uh, some legitimacy that can hold also to some constitutional standards or public law standards. I think this is also dangerous in some sense because when the state is implied in this, again, informal dynamic, it becomes harder to know what is, you know, the standards that these companies are reviewing, the content or the appeals based on, and also by the end of the day, we know, and Avalon has written about it, that the oversight board cannot be an individual remedy to individual cases. To be honest, it is unclear also to me how, you know, potentially if I am a user, let's say, and my content has been removed, it's, I can, you know, pursue the path of going to the oversight board or petitioning, but I, do, I still don't know that the cyber unit was behind that removal. And I think this mitigates the chance of challenging state referrals within the internal uh, oversight of uh, Facebook. Yeah, and I think also it's worth mentioning, and maybe we haven't touched on this. So community standards, whatever they mean, whatever their content is, are subject to a lot of interpretation. And so the question is whether the interpretation of these community standards is performed solely by the the by Facebook or the social media platforms, or is influenced by a third actor, and th- in this case, the cyber unit states, is a big point here. So whether or not certain community standards amount to you know, legitimate grounds for uh, removing certain content might be if Facebook was left to, to, to interpret them in, in certain contexts, way different than uh, what they might mean if Israel comes out and says, well, your community standard against violence should be interpreted to include uh, content of this sort that we're referring to you. So there is a, a more active role in the construction of the meaning of the community standards that these referrals might be contributing to. 100%, I think I completely agree with you, Fadi, and I think these are part of the risks of such mechanisms as the the internet referral units because they constantly engage and their whole work model 
is built on interpreting community standards. It's true that some units say, as in the, the, the cyber units, say that we only refer content that violates Israeli law, domestic Israeli law, but it is only in conjunction with the community standards or the terms of service. So the, the cyber unit is constantly you know, interpreting these and learning and incorporating the, the community standards into its own work. And I think because terms of service are quite vague by the end of the day, and um, despite the, the, the improvements in detail, perhaps in the last few years, we, they are still very prone to overbroad interpretation. And now it becomes more and more hijacked by state interpretation of what these sh- community standards should be. And in this case, I also want to just flag, you know, the, the state interestingly argued also in its proceedings that, well, we are a repeat player, borrowing obviously a term from Mark Gallanter um, from the famous article. But I think this is precisely the danger in these cases, you know, the, that IRUs are repeat player and unlike, you know, dispersed power and bargaining power of users, they possess a much, much bigger leverage when they engage in this kind of play with the companies. So I just want to say it's incredibly wild to me that they were talking about the oversight board in an Israeli Supreme Court decision. You know, the the oversight board's this entirely private creation that that Facebook set up, uh, and here it is in a public law decision of a country. And, you know, I wonder if it's going to be the first of a number of interactions between this sort of shadow and, and, you know, what some fairly call sort of sham justice system of platforms and actual legal systems. I mean, Rabia, you were saying that the court was in some sense bestowing legitimacy on what Facebook is doing and and the mechanisms that they're creating by referencing this. And that's exactly what Facebook wanted from creating this institution. That's the goal of it. It's not clear to me that in its current form, it's actually earned that legitimacy. So it's, yeah, it's just a a totally wild dynamic. And as, as this oversight board sort of starts creating jurisprudence, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch how courts deal with this. It's fascinating that the the Israeli Supreme Court was sort of willing to, to reference it and sort of engage with it. And, it. and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier as the triangle of, of modern speech regulation. And the decision has a bunch of references to Yale law professor Jack Balkan's work, who is famously talked about this system of freedom of expression going from a dyadic one in sort of the olden days where it was about the state regulating the speaker to this triadic relationship where there's these new platforms that are mini regulators in themselves that have both relationships with users and relationships with governments. But one of the key things that Jack Balkan sort of talks about in his work and and sounds the alarm about, including in the article Free Speech is a Triangle, which the court refers to, is this risk of collateral censorship where, you know, all of the things that we have talked about over the course of this interview, the government is pressuring platforms and sort of hanging this sort of sword over their heads of further harsher regulation, even though it's informal at this stage, and making them sort of censor content that it perhaps would be unconstitutional for them to censor directly, but going through this sort of roundabout way. I mean, you sort of talked about it just then as saying that this is maybe a benefit because they're a repeat player. Did the court talk about the risks of collateral censorship at all? Was that something that they were alive to in their reasoning? It's an interesting point because 
the court invoked all this terminology of uh, free speech as a triangle, explicitly quoted the, the articles of uh, Professor Jack Balkin, but with a twist. Um, because that was, although the, the court acknowledged that there could be, quote, influence uh, to the discretion of uh, content intermediaries, but it's still, so in some way, yes, it acknowledged that potentially there could be some risks of that, but it was only implied. In fact, the twist was to say, here is the new model of how speech is regulated, and we should think about it as a positive way. It suggested the term of reverse regulation as a new term potentially to capture these dynamics, and in fact, viewed it as a positive thing. So I think that despite quoting the, the free speech triangle, you know, metaphor or, or um, model, it, it quoted it with a twist. Uh, and the twist was to not necessarily judge it as a normative judgment, but as a descriptive and saying and, and bypassing the whole you know, discussion of what dangers it really possesses. Besides acknowledging that, you know, the state power could influence the counter intermediaries in their decision. So I think there is a double play here. There is, uh, on one hand, acknowledging it, on the other hand, bypassing it or or mitigating the, the description of this triangle or, or the state power in this triangle. So I think this is this is an interesting dynamic because the court concluded by the end of the day that despite this influence, and this is a quote, for example, saying, uh, as long as a violation of rights exists, it is carried out by the operators of the online platforms and not by state actors. So... There is here, I think, a tension that is present at the court's decision, which is on one hand acknowledging these dynamics, acknowledging the state leverage and power, on the other hand, still placing the violation of rights, if exists, the court says, on the private platforms. Yeah, and, and, and it's important to note that both your article, Evelyn, and Balkan's articles are presented in a way that really erases all the challenges to this new model that are presented within these works. So it's not quoted or it's not referenced. These articles are not referenced in their entirety, but only for the, the, the purpose of describing this new relationship, while at the same time ignoring the warning signs that you, Evelyn, bring up and also Balkan brings up in his work. Oh dear. Uh, well, thank you for clarifying, and I'm glad that we can get it on the record that I, I do have many, many critiques and criticisms of the board, and I certainly don't want to be sort of part of the machine of bestowing it with false legitimacy that it needs to earn if it's going to be, uh, and you know, it's unclear that it ever will be able to earn. And there's one further twist in this oversight board dynamic that is going on here. So one of the members of the currently 20-member board is Emmy Palmer, who was the director general of the Israeli Ministry of Justice for five years and, dum-dum-dum, saw the creation of the cyber unit. So your response to this may be no comment, which is completely fine, but do you have any views about what it might say about sort of Emmy Palmer's view of the role of social media censorship or perhaps the court's view of the oversight board? I mean, one thing that's really interesting is that many of the critics of the oversight board so far have suggested that it's far too libertarian in its view of free speech and that it's just sort of telling Facebook to reinstate too much content and that it sort of won't oversee 
restrictions of speech, except in the most limited of, of circumstances. But here, if we pull out this history, Emmy Palmer's sort of role in the creation of this cyber unit might suggest that she has a different view of, of social media takedowns. So I'm just curious if you have any reactions to that at all. Yeah, so uh, you can also react to this because I don't have any particular notion of what the views of Amy uh, Palmer is. What I do think that we need to kind of highlight here and kind of emphasize, which is important in the context that we're talking about, is that censorship of free speech, whomever is conducting it and kind of leading it, is always going to victimize minorities and those who operate in political contexts that the, the general kind of mindset and worldview kind of do not correspond with this particular type of speech. And that's my concern with this kind of relationship because I'm, I'm really embedded more in the context of Israel and Palestine. And I view this whole thing, even though it has global kind of manifestations and implications, but I do want to kind of keep myself grounded when I think about this in the local political context. I completely agree with Fadi. I think I think what we can learn from what I am concerned about the role that uh, Amy Palmore case as you know an appointee to the to the Facebook Oversight Board may reveal is not the fact that Amy Palmore was appointed, but who has accessibility to being appointed uh, at Facebook. And there is uh, not only at Facebook in these you know more uh, private platforms. I think the Amy Palmore case can uh, reveals the um, lack of symmetry when it comes to to Israel-Palestine with accessibility to um, decision-making positions. I think this is the problem that we should be talking about as well, that who gets the the accessibility to uh, senior positions, to decision-making positions in these platforms, and who is not at the table, which voice we are not hearing here, and which voice is being marginalized, as Fadi said. So I want to close on what's maybe a, a somewhat depressing question. Um, I'm curious for your reflections on the case, just sort of how you feel about the loss and your thoughts on whether this suggests anything about the relationship between the government and social media platforms. You know, if if there are doors left open for further challenges, whether this will embolden the government, whether there were any warning shots in the court's decision that might cause the government to be more cautious. So... You know, anytime a lawyer loses in court, it's uh, it's not a nice feeling. But as a human rights attorneys, and I can't speak for Rabia, but we're kind of used to that, especially that we most of our cases concern Palestinian rights in Israel. Just in the past three weeks, I lost two cases, so it's it's basically a feeling that we 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 kind of increasingly get used to. It's to me the the. the Regardless of the prospects of winning the case, it was important to bring it in anyway and to raise the issue before the courts, whether as an act of documenting certain issues through law or uh, to kind of bring the, the, the topic into conversation. I think in, in terms of what kind of future steps can be taken, the, me and Rabia have already started talking about whether or not it would be interesting to kind of pursue uh, another uh, freedom of information request, seeing 
whether the comments made by the court about the lack of transparency, which it did. Basically, it says that it, it would be lovely, and, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic, if the, the cyber unit would do a better job at um, keeping a record. But to be more serious, it's, it's uh, something that we can actually pursue and see if they start to accumulate and, and document the, the request and the content that they're uh, requesting its removal. But we will be facing another hurdle, especially in what they deem as you know, falling within the category of terrorist incitement or content that is, yeah, falls within the category of terrorism. Uh, because they, as they mentioned in court, this could also be kind of subjected to secrecy by other tools within Israeli law because it relates to state security and, you know, these kind of grounds that allow the, the government not to divulge any information. So we'll see about that. I think it's important for, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the decision in terms of its implications within the jurisdiction of Israel, but the activity of the cyber unit is not restricted to Israel. I mean, the, the court does acknowledge, and in, in a very twisted way, in my opinion, that the cyber unit refers uh, content by users that are not located in Israel. And for the court, that meant that these users are not uh, beneficiaries of constitutional law protections. But for me, that means that the state of Israel is exceeding its jurisdictional kind of uh, boundaries in limiting speech or assisting in limiting speech by those who are in the U.S., in Europe, in the Palestinian you know, occupied territories. And that on its own means that the interest in, in, this, in the activities of the cyber unit should be on a much larger scale than only, you know, a bunch of NGOs who are interested in, in protecting the civil rights of citizens and residents in Israel-Palestine. I think also that it's interesting that the court, despite dismissing the petition, it still recommended that the cyber unit take kind of, you know, voluntary measures to enhance its uh, transparency. And also it suggested, although it did not require that, that the cyber unit will uh, ground its authority in explicit law. So it's clear that the court by the end of the day is seeing that there is something unusual here. And But despite all of this is moving forward to dismiss the case or to dismiss the petition. Me personally, as, as, as Fadi said, I share the same sentiments, you know, like we are used to lose at courts. I think this is kind of uh, our job to lose at courts in Israel, especially when it comes to Palestinian issue. It's not the exception would be perhaps winning. All right. That's all the time we have. Fadi and Rabia, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.